so it actually is um, Reformation Sunday. Every now and then, October 31st falls on uh, a Sunday, actual Sunday. And so I like to remind you of what that important event was all about. So that's what we're doing today. Last Sunday, we talked about Paul's warning to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20 that they must, as all church leaders must, ever since that time, protect the flock from wolves. Paul said, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. So, there's a constant need for vigilance in that area. There always has been. You know, wolves can take over a church. Wolves can take over a denomination. Wolves can take over nations. Wolves can take over a continent for, for centuries, which is what happened in Europe in the Middle Ages. And Martin Luther, and the way God used him, broke that hold. And so I want to talk about him today and just kind of remind you of how God can use very imperfect people to do pretty amazing things. And what our obligation is to maintain the Word of God. We each have an obligation to make the Word of God paramount in all things. So on October 31st, um, 503 years ago, if you said it was, 503 years ago, um, Martin Luther did this act. So I want to talk about him. Now, I can't do Martin Luther's life justice in just a few minutes because it's an amazing life, but I can show you from a world-changing moment in history how the truth can burst forth like sunlight after a storm. It, it can happen. The Roman Catholic Church in the early 15th, um, 1500s, the 16th century, had a really tight grip on Western Europe. Now, they didn't run the church all over the world, but in Europe they did. And it was a very corrupt system. High church offices, bishops, archbishops, um, they paid a lot of money to get those positions and there were zero spiritual qualifications. If you gave money to Rome in the vast amounts, you could be an archbishop. And archbishops made a lot of money from their parishes, so it was a, it was a financial thing. Celibacy was required of all priests, but hardly any local priests were celibate. The gospel of grace was buried under centuries of layers and layers of tradition just piled on top of it. So it was really obscured. If you dug down through there far enough, you might find something close to the gospel of Jesus, but it was just buried. The Bible was actually forbidden to lay people to read. In fact, most priests never read a Bible or picked up a Bible or were trained in a Bible. The wolves had been in charge by that time for many, many years. Centuries. And it kept getting worse because more and more odd practices and traditions were piled up on top of it. So it started getting off at a certain point and just kept getting worse. Because once the wolves are in the door, there's no stop stopping them from doing what they're going to do. Now, people had made efforts to restore the Bible before. John Wycliffe, um, an Oxford professor in England, translated the Bible into English long before Martin Luther's time, and it ignited a fire. And there were men called the Lollards that took the English Bible around to English people and preached the gospel to them. And most of them were killed, burned at the stake, suppressed. They would have killed Wycliffe, but... Um, 
he lived too long. Uh, they, he had a he had a pretty major protector. But in 17, uh, I'm sorry, 1376, Wyc Wycliffe wrote this. He said, "England belongs to no pope. The pope is but a man, subject to sin. But Christ is the Lord of lords, and this kingdom is to be held directly and solely of Christ alone." That was his heart. That was his passion. When we sing that Reformation song, it went through the five solas, basically. Faith alone, grace alone, the glory of God alone, Christ alone, and Scripture alone. And that's what he was saying there. Wycliffe had powerful supporters, so they didn't, they kept finessing things, so nobody took him away. He was very popular, but um, he was condemned 40 years after his death by the Council of Constance. They dug up his body and burned him burned his bones to punish him. So the light that was starting to dawn with the Bible being in people's hands was uh, suppressed and turned dark again and started to dim. Then one day, this um, fairly well-to-do German peasant's son was uh, heading to a career in law and he was riding along uh, on a mule or something and lightning almost killed him. It just knocked him down and almost killed him. And he swore he would become a monk. And he kept his vow. His name was Martin Luther. And he lived as an Augustinian monk for 20 years. And Luther took his calling as a monk very seriously. And he tried to live in perfect obedience to the strict rules of his Augustinian order. He also believed his heart had to be right as well. And he constantly fall, fell short of that. Anybody here connect with falling short of yeah, 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 me too Luther later said if ever a monk came to heaven through monkery it should have been I in the monastery I lost both the salvation of my soul and the health of my body he, he never felt acceptable to God never felt like God could love him he'd never done enough penance or enough prayers or enough fasting. He became a monk in 1505 and was ordained a priest in April of 1507 and he performed his first mass the following month in May of 1507 and it was a terror filled experience for him. It's supposed to be a great day when you do your first mass as a priest but it shook him to the core. Remember the Catholic Church teaches that when the priest elevates the bread, the host and says words over it, it actually becomes the body of Christ. He's actually holding in his hands the body of God. That's, that's what they teach. And so that's what he was doing. You're holding in your hand the very God and Savior of the world, re-sacrificing him on an altar. And Luther said this about that experience. He said, at these words, at these words um, we offer unto thee the living, the true, eternal God. I was utterly stupefied and terror-stricken. I thought to myself, with what tongue shall I address such majesty, seeing that all men ought to tremble in the presence of even an earthly prince? Who am I that I should lift up my eyes or raise my hands to the divine majesty? Angels surround him. At his nod, the earth trembles. Shall I, a miserable little pygmy, say, I want this or I ask for that? For I am dust and ashes and full of sin, and I'm speaking to the living, eternal, and true God. So he was visibly shaking when he did that. Not because he was nervous, because his family was in the back. They were. But because he was approaching God as an unworthy person. So Luther was 
consumed by his own personal sinfulness. The church said, purge yourself by self-denial. And he treated himself very harshly. The church said there's hope in penance. Now, penance in the Catholic Church is a sacrament of grace, a means by which God gives grace to sinners. But penance only brings grace if it meets three conditions. And the conditions are contrition, you have to have a broken heart, confession, you have to admit your sin, and satisfaction, you have to make up for it by some saying the rosary or doing some good work or something like that. So if you were raised Catholic, and I know a number of you were, that you know that system, how that kind of works. Well, for Luther it was, well, how can I be sure my contrition is real or sufficient, that I have a sufficiently broken heart? How can I possibly make satisfaction sufficient to merit the favor of God? What good work could I do to actually bring his favor to me? And confession... He spent hours in the confessional. In fact, if you were the priest working that day when Luther came, you would get a cup of coffee and a newspaper before you sat down because it was going to be a long time you were going to be in the confessional booth because he had a lot to say. In fact, uh, one day a priest was hearing his confession, a fellow Augustinian monk, and he said, why don't you go out and do something worthy of being confessed, like kill your parents? <laughs> He was joking, I think, but um, Luther was serious about his sin and about what he's supposed to do. This is what you're supposed to do, and that's what I'm going to do. He was following a path laid out by the church for his salvation. Thankfully, Martin Luther had a very fine man that was the head of the Augustinian order, the, the group of monks where he, where he lived, Johann von Staupitz. A lot of credit goes to him. He's not a well-known person. But he saw Luther's potential, and he was always trying to help him. He told Martin, he says, you're making salvation too hard. <laughs> he said, you just need to love God. And Luther said, I don't love God, I hate God. Because he found no peace with God. He hated that God held judgment over him. Von Stoppitz knew that Luther was very bright, extremely talented, theological um, knowledge, aptitude for learning. So he nurtured him academically. He sent him for advanced theological studies at Wittenberg in um, the big university where they lived in 1508. And this pointed him to the Bible where von Staupitz thought Luther might find some comfort in the Word of God. Remember, in those days, a typical priest or a monk did not read the Bible. That was not something they did. Now, they may have recited parts of it as part of liturgies and things like that, but to actually read, to study the Bible, get into it, look at all of it, they, they, they didn't do that. A, a priest's job is to communicate God's grace to people through sacraments. Through, that's his job, not to understand God's word. So um, two important things happened to Luther right at this time, 1508. One was he was exposed to the word of God. The second one was he was sent to represent his Augustinian order in a dispute. He was sent to Rome. So Luther traveled from Germany to Rome and spent a month there. And he was absolutely horrified. Because immorality was rampant and widespread, even among the bishops. Now this is supposed to be the holiest city in Christendom. This is where the Pope lives. This is where the College of Cardinals meets. This is where all the, the big things. He said, um, even among the bishops there was rampant immorality. It was well known. And he said, churchmen were considered godly if they confined their appetites to women. 
Luther said, and I'm quoting, I would not exchange for money my trip to Rome. Otherwise, I would not believe what I saw with my own eyes. Godlessness and evil are great and shameless there. Neither God nor man, neither sin nor modesty are respected. So testify all the pious who were there and all godless who returned worse from Italy. I did not stay long in Rome, but I found occasion to celebrate and hear many a mass. I still shudder when I think of it now. I heard people laughing, laughingly boast in the end that some celebrated the mass, saying to the bread and wine, bread, thou, bread art thou and bread thou wilt remain, and then they elevated it. I was a young and pious monk who was hurt by such words. What should I think? I had to think that in Rome they talked so freely and publicly. If Pope, cardinals, and courtiers celebrated Mass that way, I had been deceived, since I had heard many Masses by them. I was especially annoyed over the speed with which they said Mass. By the time I reached the Gospel, the priest next to me had already finished Mass and shouted, Come on, finish, hurry up! So that was Rome. That was his Roman experience, and he was really devastated by that. Planted a lot of doubts in his mind about the Church. But more important than that was Martin Luther's study of Scripture. He earned a doctorate in biblical theology in 1512 when he began lecturing on the books of the Bible. And amazingly, in those days, a theological education, you could get a theological education and not study the Bible very much. But he was specifically assigned to do that. And that was a great blessing for him. Because a lot of theologians in those days wanted to talk about, you know, how many angels could dance on the head of a pin and those kind of really important issues. But uh, more philosophical, but uh, Luther was assigned to teach the Bible. So he taught, he taught Psalms. Romans, Galatians, and Hebrews. And if you wanted to give somebody books of the Bible to study to find the gospel, that's the perfect list. I don't know if that was intentional, but that's what he was assigned to teach. It was intentional by God, for cer certainly. Because if you want to know how to be accepted by God as a sinner, those are the books. Those are the books. So look in your Bible at Romans chapter 1. We're going to spend a few minutes here because this is where the ground-shaking soul-stirring event took place. If you want to understand how God saves men, Romans is the best book in the whole world to study that. And he did this in a systematic fashion. And as he did so, the, the Word of God lifted the weight of tradition from his shoulders. He finally understood the Gospel of Grace. So Romans is the best book. You know, years ago, I had a, a friend that was a professor of religion at CSUN, Cal State Northridge, which is obviously a secular school, but he was a Christian, and um, he was teaching a religion class. And he didn't use, unlike some people in universities, he didn't use his class to promote his own ideas or what his own personal beliefs are. But he said, you know, uh, if you guys really want to understand Christianity, is one of the religions they studied, you should read the book of Romans. So he assigned the book of Romans as an assignment. He didn't preach out of it. He just said he wanted everybody to read it, which I thought was a great idea because there the gospel is so clear. But um, so Luther, what did he discover in Paul's letter to the Romans? Well, in the very first chapter, he discovered the gospel theme that steers the whole book, and that's the idea of God's righteousness. So look down at verse 16. I'm reading from a New American Standard. Yours might read a little bit differently. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, 
as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. The righteous man shall live by faith. Luther looked really closely at that phrase. Uh -huh. The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. And here's his own words. He said, I did not love, yes, I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners. And secretly, if not blasphemously, certainly murmuring greatly, I was angry with God and I said, as if indeed it is not enough that miserable sinners, eternally lost through original sin, are crushed by every kind of calamity by the law of the Ten Commandments without having God add pain to pain by the gospel and also by the gospel threatening us with his righteousness and wrath. See, the traditional way to understand that passage in his time was that that's God's righteousness aimed at sinners. He said, Thus I raged with a fierce and troubled conscience. Nevertheless, I beat importunately, he was pushing and pressing on Paul, upon Paul at that place, most ardently desiring to know what St. Paul wanted. Then finally God had mercy on me. And I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that gift of God by which a righteous man lives, namely faith. And that this sentence, the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel, is, is passive, indicating that the merciful God justifies us by faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Do you understand what he's coming to there? It's not the righteousness of God in judging us. It's the righteousness of God being satisfied so that we can be saved by faith alone, not by trying to achieve that righteousness. That's what he discovered. So the big question is, is Luther understanding that passage correctly? Is the righteousness of God a gift that he gives us to make us righteous in his eyes? That's the big question. And yes, the whole book of Romans teaches that, as many other parts of the New Testament do as well. But never is it more clearly expressed than in Romans chapter 3. Go ahead and turn there. I'm just going to read it. Romans 3.21 through 28 here. It's very clear. And when, when Luther got here, everything that he understood in chapter 1 was totally confirmed. But now apart from the law, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Being justified, made right, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood. Through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That's a really important phrase that God is just and the justifier. God is righteous and he makes others righteous. How does he do that? By faith. Well, how does God express his justice if he's giving salvation as a gift? How, if he's justifying sinners, how does he do that? He pours out his justice, his just wrath on Christ. Keep reading there. 
Where then is boasting? It is excluded by what kind of law? Of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. It's by faith alone. Because Christ takes the wrath of God for us. That frees God to forgive us and to see us as righteous because the penalty has been paid. That's what Luther discovered. And that's what Paul obviously is teaching here. That God would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So God is just. Sin is punished, but he justifies, makes righteous the sinner who has faith in Jesus because all the punishment falls on him. So faith is receiving the gift of Christ as our substitute by his dying in our place. So God can't be pleased by human achievement, Romans 3.23. All fall short, right? All fall short. But he is pleased by the all-sufficient sacrifice of Christ. And when you get to Romans chapter 5, verse 1, Paul says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace. Isn't that what Martin Luther was seeking all that time as a monk? Peace with God. And he couldn't find it in the things he was told to do, but he found it in the gospel, in the book of Romans. And he was a new man. Luther said about this time in his life, he said, here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. Just as intensely as I had before hated the expression, the righteousness of God, I now lovingly praise this most pleasant word. His, his world was changed by the gospel. So Luther continued to study and to teach, and his lectures were very popular. He was a very talented teacher, but now he was passionate, too, about the gospel. So he was eager to share that with his students and to promote the true doctrine of the Bible. So his theology became very influential locally, but he wasn't anything like famous yet. His fame began not with this grand issue of justifying faith, but as he sought as a pastor to defend his flock from a wicked spiritual activity going, going on across the river that his people were involving themselves in, and that was the sale of indulgences. You might have heard about that. So let's talk about indulgences. There's nothing about indulgences in the Bible. You won't find it. It's not in there. But people were told to do it. Indulgences originally were crafted by the church as a means of satisfying God by a payment of some sort. And it really had to do with ecclesiastical violations and things like that. That's sort of how it started. It was sort of like a civil fine for spiritual means or something like that. But it was a part of the sacrament of penance. And remember, we talked about penance. Contrite heart confession of sin, and satisfaction. So it was sort of tied to the idea of satisfaction. If those things were done, then the priest could grant absolution, forgiveness. But in Luther's time, indulgences were sold to get people out of purgatory. So the Roman Catholic Church taught that when you died, even if you were a Christian, you'd go burn in purgatory for so many years. It could be centuries, um, and, and it was like being in hell, but eventually you could burn, purify your soul through fire, and be taken out of there and get to go to heaven, hopefully. But if you bought an indulgence, you're out of purgatory. Or your parents are out of purgatory. Your grandfather's out of purgatory. Or somebody you love that's in purgatory could be taken out of purgatory by paying some money. 
It was actually officially made a practice, this idea of uh, indulgences in 1476. Pope Sixtus V made that an official... 1500, more than 1500 years after Christ, you know? Well, almost 1500 years after Christ. It was uh, 1476. Fairly recent in Luther's time, this idea became part of church doctrine. But right away, Rome found indulgences a really great source of income, and it, and it started to get corrupted pretty quick, because when money's involved, people get corrupted pretty easily. Rome was trying to build St. Peter's Basilica, the thing everybody goes to see when they go to Rome. It wasn't finished. They were in debt on it. Um, they needed a lot of money to finish it. So the Pope cut a new indulgence thing, and if you would pay so much money, you could get your soul or the souls of your loved ones out of purgatory. In Germany, Rome cut a deal with Archbishop Albert of Mainz. Mainz was this territory right across from where Luther was. And Albert of Mainz paid a fortune to become an archbishop. He gave Rome vast amounts of money to have that office. So he was in debt. He borrowed all that money from the Fugers, who were, you know, um, debt people. You know, they would give you money, and then you'd have to pay them back. But he was, wasn't able to pay them back. He was having trouble doing that. So he cut a deal with Rome. He says... I'll let you sell this new indulgence in my area if I can keep half to pay off the debt I owed that I paid you guys for, and the Pope can have half as well. So that was the deal they worked out. So that was happening right across the way from where Martin Luther was a pastor and a theology teacher. This really wretched man named Tetzel came into Albert of Mainz territory and sold these indulgences without penance even being required. Just money. All you need is the money. You don't have to... I mean, he, you can... Contrition and all that stuff, that's not that important. A man named Friedrich Myconius was a witness to Tetzel. He said he followed him for two years listening to him preach, and he left us an account of Tetzel's preaching. I want to read that for you. He said, At that time, a Dominican monk named Johann Tetzel was the great mouthpiece, commissioner, and preacher of indulgences in Germany. His preaching raised enormous amounts of money which were sent to Rome. This was particularly the case in the new mining town, St. Annenberg, where I, Friedrich Myconius, listened to him for over two years. The claims of this uneducated and shameful monk were unbelievable. He said if someone had slept with Christ's dear mother, the Pope had the power in heaven and on earth to forgive as long as money was put into the indulgence coffer. And if the Pope would forgive, God had also had to forgive. He furthermore said that if they would put money quickly into the coffer to obtain grace and indulgence, all the mountains near St. Annenberg would turn into pure silver. He claimed that in the very moment the coin rang in the coffer, the soul rose up to heaven. Such a marvelous thing was his indulgence. In sum and substance, God was no longer God, as he had bestowed all divine power to the Pope. And then there were the masters of the Inquisition, who banished and burned those who, say, who said conflicting words. This indulgence was highly respected, and when the commissioner was welcomed to town, the papal bull was carried on velvet and gold cloth. All the priests, monks, councilmen, teachers, pupils, men, women, maids, and children went to meet him, singing in solemn procession with flags and candles. The bells tolled, and when he entered the church, the organ played. A red cross was put up in the middle of the church to which the Pope's banner was affixed. In short, even God himself could not have been welcomed and received more beautifully." Pretty amazing. Well, Luther was upset because some of his people were crossing the river to buy indulgences for their salvation or their family's salvation, 
in, in Albert of Mainz territory, and he was really upset about it because he knew what a bogus thing the whole idea was. So he sat down and wrote 95 thesis statements for debate on the subject of indulgence. He was an academic. So he said, we need to talk about this. And he didn't have any intention of this being public, but he, on October 31st, he walked up to the church door at Wittenberg where you would post announcements and nailed them there. That's, the, that's what's told about that. But um, he also sent some copies to concerned people he thought should know about it. One of them was Albert of Mainz. Albert of Mainz forwarded that, the 95 Thesis on to Rome. Somebody in the chain leaked it, and they put it on Facebook and Instagram. <laughs> well, at least the Renaissance equivalent of Facebook and Instagram. In those days, you know, only a few years before Luther, like at the end of the 1400s, was the printing press invented. So it was a brand new thing. Everything had to be copied by hand before that. Now they could just crank them out, right? So somebody cranked out the 95 Thesis, and it shot across Europe. It was very well known. So, um, and it caused a massive controversy, of course, because since indulgences were authorized by the Pope, people could see, and they did say, that Luther was putting definite limits on the Pope's authority. That was a pretty dangerous thing to do. Luther said, if the Pope had authority over purgatory, why doesn't he just empty the place today? Why doesn't he free people out of love if, if uh, he can do it for money? Which is a pretty good question, actually. And he challenged the whole foundations of the Pope's ability to free souls out of purgatory by attacking the doctrine of the treasury of merit. What's that? Well, the treasury of merit was a Catholic idea that grew over time that all the great saints of the church down through the ages who were so good, they were extra good, and they could go to heaven, and they had leftover righteousness. And that was kept in a box. Not a literal box, but sort of a, an idea box, a storage box that the church had had control over, and the Pope could take merit out of that box and give it through decrees like indulgences. So if you paid your money for an indulgence, that extra merit that was earned by the saints would go to you. Now Luther said, reading Romans, if all fall short in the glory of God, then saints have no extra merit. They didn't even have enough merit for their own salvation, right? The righteousness that brings a saint to heaven comes through Christ alone and his sacrifice, not by their own good works. There is no such thing as a treasury of merit. That was sort of the issue that really made this go bonkers for Martin Luther. Um, treasury of merit, that's not in the Bible either. So Luther questioned that, which was questioning the church at large. And that's why this is so important. So what's what Martin Luther doing here? He's using scripture, Romans 3.23, all of sin and fall short of the glory of God, to challenge a man-made doctrine that there's extra leftover merit from the saints. And he took it on fully. He said that's a human invention. That, that is a deceptive, wolfish doctrine used to exploit people to make money out of them. That's what that is. There's no treasury of merit. So if Luther's criticism was permitted, then the whole foundation of the Roman Catholic system would collapse. And Albert of Mainz, like I said, sent Luther's work on to the Pope. So the Pope's censor wrote to Luther saying, indulgences can get people out of purgatory, and if you disagree with the church, this will make you a heretic. And Luther wrote back, saying something very much like John Wycliffe had said over a century earlier, 
The church belongs to Christ, and no pope or church council is infallible. So, so now he's sounding like John Wycliffe. I don't think he even knew about John Wycliffe. At this point, Luther would have been burned at the stake. Many had before him, but he had a very powerful protector. He lived in the territory of Saxony, which was governed by Frederick the Wise, a very important man. Wittenberg was his university. He cared very much about that. He didn't care anything about indulgences. Frederick, he didn't. that's not his thing, but that's my professor there. And he was... Frederick the Wise was the senior member of the seven electors. This is how Germany worked in those days. It was many fragmented territories. And these seven chieftains, and he was the chief of the chieftains, would elect the Holy Roman Emperor, who was sort of the emperor of various parts of Europe. And Frederick was, um, well, the emperor was also Frederick's nephew. So there's a personal family connection there. So Frederick was Luther's lord, and he said, you cannot take Luther, he needs to have a trial. The Pope said, sure, we'll have a trial for Luther, bring him to Rome. Frederick said, no, we'll have a trial on German soil. So Luther met with Car Cardinal Cayetan um, in 1518 in Augsburg, Germany, and Cardinal Cayetan brought this papal declaration from 175 years earlier that affirmed the doctrine of the treasury of merits, that that's a real thing, it's what the church teaches. And Luther said, no, you're wrong. That's wrong, and you're understanding it wrong. Cayetan said to Luther, repent or else. Luther quickly made for home. <laughs> so Frederick was dealing with this whole situation, Frederick the Wise, and he kind of slow-walked everything, and Luther was becoming very popular very fast while Frederick was sort of slow-walking the legal system. And people were um, very attracted to Wittenberg that wanted to go into the ministry. It became a real... Young men were hungering for biblical theology and sitting under Luther's teaching, so he became very famous. And of course, he started writing pamphlets, and they were getting published in printing press, Facebook, Instagram. It's going out everywhere. And then he debated some very renowned Catholic scholars. He kept publishing stuff. His fame grew more and more. Finally, in 1521, the Pope issued a decree that if he didn't recant all of his beliefs within 60 days, he would be excommunicated by the church. Well, that's the only church in town, or in Europe. So to be excommunicated left you very exposed to severe punishments. Luther and his university students took the Pope's message and burned it publicly at the university. They didn't care what the Pope had to say about it. Frederick the Wise said Luther cannot be condemned without a trial. So Luther was brought to Worms, Worms it looks like in English, a diet of worms. That's what they call it, the diet of worms. And a diet is a meeting. And, um, and he was going to stand before the princes of Germany and the Holy Roman Empire Emperor Charles V. They didn't have any debate. He came before them. They just asked him a few questions. Luther was asked before the assembly to recant, to reject his own writings, and if he did that, the church would welcome him back and he would be a celebrity teacher. He was, he was brought before the most powerful men in Europe. All the electors were there. The Holy Roman Emperor was there. All these big shots were there. And he hesitated. He was sort of timid. He was kind of, you know, this is pretty serious. And she said, give me time to reconsider. So they gave him one day. So he spent the night praying and came back the next day. He found his courage. And here's how one account uh, puts it, from what we know. 
It was late afternoon, darkness engulfed the room, and the wavering light of the torches added to the dramatic mood. Luther had overcome his timidity of the previous day. His writings fell into three groups, he stated. Some dealt with faith and morals, some with papal tyranny, some were written against literary opponents. At times he had been vehement in tone. Yeah, he really could be vehement in tone. More vehement than became a Christian, and for this he apologized. But revoke? If he were convinced by scriptural texts, he would do so, and be the first to burn his own books. He was told that his answer had not been clear enough. Luther's response has made history. Since your majesty and your lords demand a simple answer, I shall give one without horns and teeth. That was an expression back then. Unless I am convinced by the testimony of Scripture and evident reasoning, I am convinced by the sacred Scripture I have cited. For I believe neither solely the Pope nor the councils, for it is evident that they have erred often and contradict one another. My conscience is captured by the Word of God. I cannot and I will not revoke since to act against one's conscience is neither safe nor honest. The official retorted that Luther should forget about his conscience, that he could never prove the councils had erred. Luther insisted that he could, but at this point the emperor interjected that enough had been said and Luther was escorted from the hall. Aleander, who was there, reported to Rome that Luther, when leaving, raised his arms, quote, as is the custom of German soldiers when they rejoice over a good hit. Unquote. That's what happened on that day. So Luther came to Worms on the Worms on the uh, insistence that Frederick said that he could only come there on a safe conduct. In other words, whatever happened there, he would have a safe conduct back home before anything was decided or done to him. And um, but Frederick didn't believe that he would be treated fairly. So he had his men kidnap Martin Luther on the way home and rush him off to a, a castle in the forest, the Wartburg Castle. And during 10 months there, Luther wrote all kinds of major works, theology works, a lot of letters back and forth to his guys. And he did one of the most important things that was done by Martin Luther. He translated the New Testament into German, common German, that the regular person could understand. That's one of the most important things he did. He made God's word available to everyone. So he was condemned at Worms, but by the time the document was signed, or ready to be signed, all the electors had gone home, so only the Holy Roman Emperor signed it, and that allowed for a lot of legal wrangling. Well, I don't know if that's a fully legal document yet, since all the electors haven't signed it, and so Frederick could go back and forth. Anyway, that wrangling lasted until Luther died many years later. I mean, he, he survived, and Frederick the Wise protected him. Well, by that time, the Reformation was in France, Switzerland, the Dutch areas, England, it was starting to move, and it was too late to put it down. Even the Roman Catholic Church, right about the time Luther died, held a, a great council that lasted for several years, and they actually doubled down on their bad theology and all of their doctrines, but they did reform a lot of things that were truly amiss in the Catholic Church, which made it very easy for people to become Protestants, like buying church offices and all that kind of stuff. They, they eliminated a lot of that. They did good things in, in that sense. But Luther changed the world by that time because he held forth the gospel of grace. He also honored God's view of sexuality by marrying a former nun and having a big family and uh, doing all of that. He advocated for universal education for all children, a, a wild new idea. Most of all, he made scripture paramount in the mind of the Christian. 
Martin Luther was a man that God raised up at a certain time in history to reestablish the gospel of grace that Paul taught so clearly in the Bible. But the Bible was forbidden, so people didn't even know about it. But his greatest contribution was making Scripture the supreme authority. Because Luther wasn't perfect. He could be wrong about things, his interpretation of things sometimes. We certainly disagree with his view of baptism and things like that. But he would agree that Scripture is the authority, not him. He did have a pretty strong personality, but he would still say that. And because he made Scripture the supreme authority, the church always has a way to correct itself. Churches can go wrong. People can go wrong. Pastors can go wrong. But there's always the Bible to correct what goes wrong. And he gave us that. And he deserves a lot of credit for that. People say, what's the difference between Catholics and Protestants? Well, you know, there's a lot of difference. But the biggest difference is authority. In the Roman Catholic Church, <laughs> tradition is equal to the Bible in authority. But after Luther, following a scriptural idea, that whatever men say, even great councils say, is under what the Bible says. The Bible is the sole authority. Scripture alone. Christ alone. Grace alone. Scripture alone. So does tradition and papal decree equal scriptural authority? The Catholic Church says yes. The Reformation churches, no matter how far men go astray, they always say no. Only the Bibles are authorities. And that will be the corrective. That's why, that's why we can correct ourselves when we're wrong. Church history tells us that wolves can swallow the gospel and keep it from whole areas for whole centuries at a time. Isaiah, um, the prophet of the gospel, the one that says the most about the gospel of Christ beforehand, lived 700 years before Christ. In Isaiah chapter 8, he lived in very dark times when wolves were telling the people that magic or um, false prophets or mediums or spiritists were ways to find out truth. Isaiah pointed into the word of God. In Isaiah chapter 8, verse 19, he said, when they say to you, Consult the mediums and the spiritists who whisper and mutter. Should not a people consult their God? Should they consult the dead on behalf of the living? To the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn, no light. They will pass through the land hard-pressed and famished, and it will turn out that when they are hungry... They will be enraged and curse their king and their God as they face upward. And when they look to the earth, behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be driven away into darkness. That's the end of the wolves. That's how they end. You know what the motto of the Reformation was? Anybody know? Post tenebrus lux, which is Latin for after darkness, light. People have been in darkness a long time. And bringing the Bible back to life brought light, the gospel, the word of God. So, last week we talked about a lot of battles in the first century against wolves in the days of the apostles. Today we talked about a key moment 500 years ago that rescued the gospel from a pack of wolves. Next Sunday we're going to look at two major movements today that twist and corrupt the gospel from within, from within the churches.
very important that you understand who the wolves are today. And there's there's a lot of them, and there's a lot of variations on things, but there's two big ones that are happening right now. So we're going to talk about those next week. Look at them from a biblical point of view. Okay? Thank you. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for what you've done in history. You use, you use sinful men to do great things. And Luther was passionate for the gospel and for you and for right living. And if he stumbled sometimes like we do, he brought great things into the world. We thank you for him, for all like him, for the men that supported him and stood by him, men that went to their deaths, burned at the stake to proclaim the word of God in lands where his influence had not extended. And Father, we pray that we will be faithful to the gospel of grace because only there is our peace found. And we're not going to let anyone snatch us from that. Thank you, and I give you glory and praise in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.